Come on in, come find a seat. Uh, my name is Glenn Jones and uh, currently serving as a pastoral resident here at Sovereign Grace. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, uh, we're actually in the middle of a series in Exodus that I think is probably going to take us about 40 years to complete. Uh, we've been wandering around the pages of Exodus and you're probably getting to that place where you're starting to wonder, like, when are we going to get to the promised land of the next series? Life in Leviticus. It's going to be great. So many good things are ahead of us, but they will have to wait because we're still in Exodus. And um, uh, Paul, would you mind pressing pause on the iPod? so that I have a soundtrack to the sermon. Thanks. Well, I actually just, in all seriousness though, I have been loving our time in Exodus. Um, hasn't it been good? You know, just, there's, there's so much there. And just to take that time to slow down and process things deeply, richly, to see um, how it applies to our lives in so many different ways, it's just been so good for, so good for my soul. Uh, and, uh, and for yours as well, I believe. Exodus is essentially about how the Lord is fulfilling his promises, his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And that's exactly what he's done. You, you see, you know, at the end of Genesis, that this tribe of 66 people come down into the land of Egypt. And while they're there, over 400 years, they grow in number, and then they leave. And as they leave, there's 603,550 fighting men plus women and children that the Lord is drawing out of Egypt and drawing them into a relationship with him. The, uh, the Ten Commandments, which we had a mini-series on within our series, that gives you an idea of how big our series really is, doesn't it? Um, is the Ten Commandments is kind of like a DTR. It's a define the relationship. It's like God saying, look, guys, this is how it's going to work. Uh, this is how it'll be for you and I to be in a relationship where I am a holy God and you are my people. And so Simon just finished off last week this section uh, which followed the Ten Commandments uh, with, with lists of laws, essentially saying, God is a holy God, and if you are going to be his people, this is what it looks like to be his holy people. So this morning, we move into this new section where we're looking at the promised blessings that come as a result of obeying the Lord. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, please open up to Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to read from verse 20 to 33. <clears throat> So Exodus 23, verse 20 to 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. 
when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and th- will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, would you help us to see wonderful things in your word? Lord, would your Holy Spirit give us wisdom to see the application of this passage into our lives, corporately as a church and specifically as individuals? And Lord, would you give us faith to believe your word? so that it might result in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you want to put a title at the top of your page, uh, you can write The Conquest of Canaan. And I've got three points just to help us kind of keep our thoughts clear this morning. Uh, Those three points are the angel, the battle, and the promise. So the angel the battle, and the promise. So last week, uh, Simon finished off his sermon uh, by making a comment on that verse, you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And I think he basically said, uh, look, you just guys got to work that out for yourself. I feel personally that it is just so obvious, I don't even need to make a comment on it here. But... Right after that, the Lord says, oh, and by the way, I'm giving you a guardian angel. It's awesome. It's just great. I love the word of God. And it is just so rich. And so this whole section that we've just read now is all about this angel. He is the central figure. So if we're going to understand what this passage is really talking about, then we need to ask ourselves two questions. The first one is, Who is this angel? Who is the angel? And the second question is, then why is he described as an angel? So, 
First question, who is this angel? So if you are reading through Exodus in one sitting, which we're not doing this morning, but you would probably go, oh, yeah, right, the angel. Like, I remember the angel. This is not the first time the angel appears in Exodus. Right at that pinnacle moment, when Israel is trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, it's the angel of the Lord who protects the Israelites and leads them to salvation. So have a look at Exodus 14, verse 19 to 20. It says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So this angel protects and guards them. So the Israelites are familiar with his presence because he's already been leading them. And so here in Exodus 23, what's new for the Israelites is that the Lord is now promising that this angel will complete the mission. He's drawn them out already, and he is now going to draw them in or lead them in. He's going to guard them, and he's going to protect them. He's going to fight the battles for them as they head into Canaan. What the Lord begins, he always completes. And so just as the Lord promised, the angel appears to Joshua in chapter 5 of Joshua, verse 13. Have a listen. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, I love this bit. And he said, No. (laughs) No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now, when... I imagine that when you think of an angel, you're probably thinking of a man dressed in a white robe who's probably pretty buff, and he's just got these massive wings behind him. But actually, when angels appear in the Bible, apart from the, uh, if, you know, apart from the angels that appear to the shepherds, which were still not clear anyway, other than the fact they were bright and white, apart from that, when angels, angels appear in the Bible, they often look like humans. There's not a lot to distinguish them from other people. That's why Joshua didn't recognize him at first. But on closer inspection, this angel in Exodus 23 is no ordinary angel. Have a look at this. Exodus, in in verses 21 and 22, see these things. The Lord requires that the Israelites obey him. In verse 21. And what the angel says and what the Lord says are synonymous in verse 22. And if you don't obey his words, then this angel has the power to bring divine judgment for their disobedience in verse 21. And what's really interesting is that he bears the Lord's name. It says, my name is in him. Now, the Lord's name is his character. So, in other words, this angel has a divine character. 
And I think perhaps the most extraordinary thing about this angel is that he accepts worship. So when Joshua meets him outside of Jericho, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, angels won't accept worship from humans. If they do, then they're not angels, they're demons. So in Revelation 19, you might be familiar, the angel that appears to the Apostle John is very clear when John tries to worship him. He says, no, don't do it. Don't worship me. Worship God. But instead, this angel, the angel of Exodus 23 and Joshua 5, responds to Joshua by saying, take off your sandals because the place where you are standing is holy. He's introduced to us in Exodus as an angel and he appears like a man in Joshua 5. He speaks with divine authority. He bears the Lord's name and he acts in a way that brings about salvation. That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Have a listen to this in John 14 verse 2. Jesus goes ahead of his disciples to prepare a place for them, just like the angel goes ahead of Israel to secure a place God has prepared. In John 17, Jesus praying says that he has guarded his own, just like the angel is to guard the Israelites. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus is the way, just like the angel will guard and lead him on the way. And in John 17, Jesus gives his disciples the words that he has given, he was given. And then in Exodus 23, what the angel says are the words that the Lord speaks. Jesus speaks of the name you gave me in John 17, 11. And the Lord says about the angel, my name is in him. So while it's not explicitly stated in Exodus 23, from the vantage point that we have, having seen the full revelation of God in the man Christ Jesus, we can look back and we can say, look, it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. That's Jesus. That's, he was there in the story all along, and we just didn't recognize him. Jesus has always been the one who accomplishes salvation for his people. Okay, so the angel is at the very least a foreshadowing of Jesus, but in the way that it is so clear, it appears that this really is Jesus. So then why is he described as an angel? Well, remember that the Lord doesn't reveal everything all at once. So the story of history is God's big story of salvation. So one reason that he's described as an angel is because God's not giving everything away. He's giving us hints and suggestions. He's acting in the same patterns and doing the same thing so that when Christ arrived fully in the flesh, we'd have categories for what the Lord is like. Each of these categories find their most clearest picture in Christ himself. So the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, finally fulfilled in Christ. The priest, 
fulfilled in Christ who intercedes for us. The prophet who speaks God's very words to be obeyed in Christ. And the temple where God dwells with his people is now fulfilled in Jesus. And so here in Exodus 23, Jesus is described as an angel because he wants us to see that he is a warrior. But not just any warrior, he is a holy warrior that fights for the salvation of his people. So have a look with me at Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. In Exodus chapter 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he says, verse 5, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Those are almost the exact words that the angels tells Joshua in Joshua 5. So how can both Moses and Joshua stand in the presence of God? How could they stand on holy ground? Moses and Joshua were good men, but they were hardly perfect in the Lord's sight. They couldn't be in God's presence without a mediator. The angel needed to be Jesus because that's the only way that anyone could stand in God's presence. Though we don't see it in full till hundreds of years later, Jesus stands here in Exodus as the one who brings salvation and brings people into a relationship with the Lord. That's essentially what the whole book is about. God draws his people out of slavery and brings them into a relationship with himself. And it's Jesus who does that. It always has been. It's been Jesus in the burning bush. It's Jesus in the pillar of cloud. And it's Jesus who stands before Joshua as a commander of the army of the Lord, promising to bring his people into the promised land. He's come as an angel because he is a mighty warrior, the Lion of Judah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none like him. He sends his terror before him and drives out his enemy with hornets. His enemies are confused before him. You see, Exodus 23 doesn't draw our attention to Jesus as a lamb. What is on display for us is that Jesus is an angel who is a warrior who will fight for his people, a warrior who will surely win the battle. None can stand before him. That's why Jesus is described here as an angel, because there is a battle to be fought. And that's our second point, the battle. Now, one of the joys of marriage is that... uh, over time, you start to discover things about your spouse that you didn't first know about them. Uh, If you're married, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. It was probably, uh, I imagine, six or seven years into our marriage when I discovered something unique about Donnie. Uh, She is unique in many ways, but this particular one was like, really? You do that? Um, When she reads books, she'll start reading the first like two or three chapters, and then She says, right, how does this go? And she flips over and she reads the last chapter. (laughs) She's not scared. 
And, and then she goes back and reads the rest of it to find out how it plays out to get to the end. Uh, unique, individual, um, love her dearly. But really, it changes the way that you read the story when you know already how it works out, doesn't it? So you're not as shocked by the things that seem bad because you know that they're necessary as part of the storyline. You're not anxious because even though you may not see everything, you have that certainty that it's just going to be okay in the end. I think that's what it's like for us as Christians. You know, we've read the last chapter. We've seen how it concludes, or at least the Apostle John has seen how it concludes, and he wrote it down, and we can read it in Revelation. And it's this, Jesus wins. That's the end. So when it comes to Exodus 23, we aren't reading it from the middle bit. We're looking at it as if we have already read the last few chapters of the book. Have a look at this. Forty years later, the Lord recounts their history in Joshua chapter 24, verse 11. And the Lord says to them through Joshua, And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. He did it. The angel of the Lord did exactly what he promised he would do. He brought them into the land of Canaan. The battle was won and the Lord was shown to be faithful to his promise. But the story doesn't end there because the Israelites weren't faithful. They didn't fully obey everything that the Lord had told them. They didn't fully drive out all the people from before them. Instead, they made covenants with the people. They started worshipping their gods. The warning in Exodus 23.33 came true. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And it was. And sadly, in Judges 2, the angel of the Lord appears again. But this time it's not to bring comfort. He says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall, not, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now... I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. What are we to make of that? Even though the Israelites had entered Canaan and been given this land, they had allowed the previous inhabitants 
to remain and had directly disobeyed what the Lord had told them to do. And over time, they had become so influenced by these pagan nations that they ended up losing the blessings that were promised by the Lord. They missed out on the abundance of food. They missed out on experiencing good health all the time and they had sickness instead and barrenness and miscarriage became more and more common and their days were cut short. Why did this happen? Well, when you've read the final chapter, then you understand. You understand that Canaan, this physical land, was never going to be the final resting place for God's people. It was just a picture of what was to come. So Paul then tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 to 13, that the Israelites were an example for us. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's like Donnie's reading style. We've read the last chapter, but we're still living in the last section. Or as Paul calls it, the end of the ages that has come upon us. We haven't seen how it all plays out. We're still reading the middle bit. But we know that the outcome is certain. Jesus wins. And so that affects how we live now. That is the battle. And so, Sovereign Grace, I would urge you, hear the warning that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10 and this warning that we see played out from Exodus 23 in the story. Don't compromise when it comes to obedience. The stakes are high. There is a battle going on. Not the battle that the Israelites were facing. It's not a battle against flesh and blood but a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. At its heart, it's a battle to believe. It's a battle to believe that what the Lord has said is the best thing for us. You know, Paul uses this phrase in Romans, the obedience of faith. Obeying is believing what God has said. And it is a battle that we fight internally but we live it out externally. So what we believe gets lived out in our, in our actions and our choices, and it is a battle that has eternal consequences. See, the Israelites sinned against the Lord, and it cost them dearly. They went into this promised land, and they thought they knew better. They were clear on what the Lord had said, but they didn't believe that it would really work out all that bad if they left some of the people there. And as Ravi Zacharias put it, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It is a battle with sin. 
It is a battle to believe the truth of God's word for us. Is that how you think of life? Do you think of life as a battle? If you don't, maybe it's because you're not fighting. I mean, look around us. We live in one of the wealthiest cities in the world. We have an incredible social welfare system. We have good quality food, easily accessible. We have clean drinking water on tap. And it can be so easy in that context to be lulled into the false comforts of the world and we can inadvertently make a covenant with other gods. See, the Israelites had come into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. It was good. They didn't have to work hard. The cities were already built for them. Things were there. Oh, yeah, it's not too bad. We'll just let those people live there as well because it's all right. We've got everything. We're comfortable. But this, this is not the promised land. We are not living in our eternal home. The battle, then, is not to live for this world, to not fall to the temptations of our desires, to, but to stand ready to obey the Lord in all things. We must put sin to death or it will be putting us to death. Step by step, one area at a time, the Lord is calling us to make sure that we are systematically rooting out the enemies of God in our hearts. So what does that look like? What does it look like to fight the fight of faith, to believe what he says? Well, it looks like being diligent to read God's word. If we're going to obey him, the first thing we need to do is be familiar with what he says to us. So we work hard to just put in practice, put in good habits in our lives to hide God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. It also looks like confessing sin to one another. And as we do that, exposing it for what it is, bringing it into the light, and then just watching that sin shrivel and die as it's holding us, is defeated. It looks like responding to temptation by speaking the truth into the situation and believing that truth to remind ourselves that the blessings of obedience are far greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin. It looks like responding to bad news with confidence and with hope, knowing that even if things don't work out the way we might want them to. Jesus is working out all things together for our good, according to his purpose. It looks like a person experiencing a deep-seated joy in the face of trials and hardship. It looks like someone turning down a promotion that would involve increased hours so that they can invest more time into their family. Because they've taken to heart the Lord's command to shepherd their children. It looks like someone giving generously of their finances towards the work of the gospel because they can't think of anything better to do with their fleeting resources than to use them for eternal gain. It looks like a zeal to share the good news of Jesus with others because 
You've come to experience his power over sin and you just want others to know that experience too. And we could just go on and on and on, but that is the battle. It's the battle to live in a way that shows we already know the outcome and we fight to live in full obedience to the Lord because the blessings he's promised are far greater than anything we will get now. That is the battle. And, that, and our third point is the promise. I don't know about you, but if you are, if you do feel like life is a battle, sometimes when you're in, in the thick of it, it is easy to lose hope. It's a struggle and it's hard. But we can fight this battle with hope. And we can continue on with confidence, not just because we know the final outcome, but because the Lord has promised to be with us in it. See how the angel goes before them. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you. Verse 30, I will drive them out before you. And in verse 31, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. The promise is that he will do it. He will resist temptation and defeat the power of sin and then we'll follow in his steps. Yeah, Jesus won the battle finally on the cross. But he fought the battle in his life. He showed us what it looks like to fight the good fight of faith. So when Jesus says, follow me, that's what he's saying. Follow him, do what he did. He endured temptation, even to the point of shedding blood, and yet he never sinned. How quickly we buckle to sin. How quickly we fall. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was looking down the barrel of a crucifixion. You know, and as cruel as a crucifixion is, with nails driven through your wrists and through your feet and shamefully hung up on a cross in a way that you can't breathe unless you put pressure on the nails, increasing the pain, as cruel as that is, that is not the worst thing that Jesus was about to endure. He was about to become sin for us. He who knew no sin was about to take on himself something that he had never tasted and was in fact abhorrent to him. In the face of that, he cries out, Father, is there another way? Is there a way that this cup can pass from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was sweating blood as he endured such strong temptation to not go through with what the Lord had told him to do, what the Lord had sent him for. And yet, he didn't buckle. Praise God, he fully obeyed the Father in every way and he endured every temptation known to man in measures that none of us have faced. He went to the cross and he drank the cup 
of God's wrath to the last drop. He fully obeyed. Oh, and had he not, he wouldn't have been able to make a way for us. Had he not, he wouldn't have been able to bring us completely to the place that he has prepared for us. And had he not, he would not have been able to gain for us all the blessings promised for that full obedience. You see, all of the blessings that we're reading about in Exodus 23 were contingent on obedience. That's why the Israelites didn't get them. And it's why if it were up to us, we wouldn't either. But Jesus won for us the eternal blessings through his obedience. Have a look at how the blessings in Exodus 23 are just like a foretaste of the kind of blessings for us in heaven. Verse 25, the food will never run out. There will be no sickness. Verse 26, there will be no death. The Lord will fulfill your days in such a way that there's just no end of them. And there will be no sin. And all the enemies of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will have been dealt with completely and utterly. And all that remains is to enjoy him forever. That's what Christ has secured for us through his perfect obedience to the Father. Oh, do you long for that? Do you long for that day when the battle will be over and Christ will return? Do you find yourself just trying to imagine what it would be like to live in perfect unity with Christ and each other and to have an increased capacity to enjoy him and just to not have to deal with sin anymore? Or do you find yourself longing for things that people have around you? Do you find that your heart is more preoccupied with things Things of the world. How can you get more? More things, better things, bigger things. You know, I think one of the reasons that we struggle to really obey the Lord is that we haven't really spent time meditating on the future blessings that Christ has already secured for us. You know, it's like the Israelites who complained and longed for the meat pots back in Egypt instead of joyfully looking forward to the abundance that it was awaiting them in Canaan. You know, so we, if we set our heart, hearts on present blessings, then we'll forget the end of the story and we'll start living as if this is the only chapter. But Christ promised to us from Exodus 23 through his perfect obedience, is that he will surely bring us into the promised land. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you, little by little, step by step, with every small confession of sin, with every cry to the Lord for help, and every time we choose to obey when we're tempted, and every time we take captive our thoughts and remind ourselves of the truth, Little by little, the battle is fought, but with an incredible promise. He is with us, and he is fighting for us. This is how Paul says it in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the promise. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The promise is that he will do it. He will sustain us. He will lead us. He will work in us even as we work so that our striving is not in vain. And when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Sovereign grace, Christ has gone before us. He's won the battle. And his perfect obedience has secured for us every blessing for all eternity. So what greater confidence could we have as we seek to obey him in all things? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to thank you and praise you for what Christ has done. Because he has done what the Israelites could not do, and nor could we do either. He has fully obeyed in all things. And he went to that cross, living, having lived a perfect life, and dying for us, becoming sin for us, so that we might know and have the righteousness of Christ. But Lord, there is a battle that remains for us. There is a way still to go. And Lord, as we fight that battle, as we fight to obey you in faith and to believe you at your word, Lord, would you empower us to do us. Give us hope knowing that Christ is with us in it, that he has already resisted every temptation and has won the victory over it and has given us that same power at work in us now. Oh, Lord, would we live in the good of that? Would we work out our salvation with fear and trembling for our good and for the glory of your name? Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.